Thank you so much. Good morning. Love for you now to take your Bibles, and we're turning together now to Acts chapter 17. And as you're turning with me to Acts chapter 17, we're going to be looking today at verse 1 down through verse 9 together. It's a, it's a fascinating passage of Scripture we're looking at. And in order to be able to fully understand what we're looking at now, we're going to have to take just a second to review what we were just covering last week at this time. There should be a picture that appears on the screen. And that picture is the cell that the Apostle Paul was incarcerated in in Philippi. Now, last week we were standing at the very edge. We were peering in. And so if you are with me on our tour, following in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul, you see, we've made our way, as we noted last week, to that place in Philippi that everybody wants to stand and gaze into and, and focus upon and think about. Paul was there. And now you're there at that very edge and you're looking down in. You're thinking about Paul, you're thinking about Silas. It was A.D. 50 that they had found themselves in that particular setting, you see. Ten years would go by, and in A.D. 60, the Apostle Paul once again was incarcerated, this time in Rome. And he would write to the people of Philippi, he would write in a place of incarceration to the place in which he was incarcerated. And what stands out, as we noted last week, about the Apostle Paul and about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that despite the physical challenges and the political limitations that people experience, you cannot restrict the gospel. They were involved in a worship service, weren't they, Paul and Silas, in that cell in Philippi? But the byproduct of worship is witness, and other prisoners were listening in. And there was the beginnings of a church that Paul would eventually write to, the people in Philippi. Fascinating beginning. A wealthy Lydia there would be the slave girl who would be nagging the Apostle Paul out in the marketplace. There would be the Philippian jailer as well, and others as such. But what stands out is that despite the limitations, despite the restrictions that the Apostle Paul experienced in that day and age, you could not incarcerate the gospel, could you? It was unleashed. Just as in this day of COVID, with spatial distancing and live stream, YouTube and the likes, gospel being unleashed in new ways, new creative strategies. And now here we find the Apostle Paul has made his way out of Philippi. He has hit the road. He's on, as we're going to note in just a few moments from now, the Ignatian Way the superhighway that would connect east to west. And when he hits the highway, he's taking the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. 
And that highway is what we are in essence alluding to as I begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 17 down through verse 9. And when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. On saying this, Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. You see. And some of them were persuaded, and I joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. On taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So we're going to be looking at these verses now, and we're going to try to understand just how they relate to modern day life. But first of all, we're going to do as we need to do. We're going to pause, and we're going to look to the Lord in prayer. So now, Father, we're thanking you for this tremendous opportunity that you've given us the opportunity to open your word. We did so in first service. We do so in second service. We do so via the live stream. We do so via YouTube viewed through the course of the week. And we're asking now that you speak to us at a point of need. And you know the needs. You know the struggles that are facing. You know the difficulties that people are encountering. But most importantly, you know the spiritual dynamics that are happening in each and every heart. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. We've come here now, Father, to see Jesus. Him only. Praying these things still again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Standing in, my, in line at the pharmacy, about to pick up a prescription, lady ahead of me stood before the pharmacist and obviously a bit hard of hearing, and so he needed to shout. But what he said was fascinating to me and links naturally into the text that we're examining this morning. You need to follow this prescription, it is absolutely necessary.
His exclamation point seized my attention and drew my thought processes back to what you and I are considering in this text. Where you and I were told in verse 2, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary. In other words, not optional. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and then to drive the point home, went on to say, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. What I want to do with you from these nine verses this morning, in person or via live stream, YouTube, I want to draw out three significant emphases that are found here now as we continue verse by verse through the book of Acts, trying to understand better what it is that God wants to highlight in the way in which this text relates to 2020 living. Three emphases I want to draw up. The first comes out of verse 1. We're going to put it like this. That as you and I, as we emphasize the necessity of Christ's work, I want to begin with you by noting, first of all, the efforts that you and I, we need, should undertake. Now, you and I remember that in Acts 16, Paul was in Philippi. And so he would then later write to the Philippians. And you have that in your Newer Testament. Now in Acts 17, he's going to make his way into Thessaloniki. And you and I are going to find that he will eventually write to the Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And so now, here you have it. He's beginning to make his way out of Philippi. He is on the Ignatian Way, which we're going to spot on a map in just a bit. All we're going to say at this moment is that he's been flogged. He's been incarcerated. He's been a man who's experienced what could very well have been a concussion in Lystra. Bodily, he has physically been challenged in every way, shape, or form. And now, after this, he's going to walk 100 or so miles. The Roman road system was roughly about 20 or so feet in width. He makes his way on this Via Ignatia, the superhighway. And as he makes his way, what he's going to do is pass through Amphipolis. See it there? It doesn't stay there. This is a well-established, high-income region. But there's no synagogue to be found. Furthermore, he makes his way from that point onward to Apollonia. But evidently, again, no synagogue to be found. For you see, the synagogue was his, his starting point, his point by which he was going to make his way with the gospel going forward. But then he comes to Thessaloniki, as the natives today pronounce it. And as he makes his way into Thessaloniki, he comes into a setting of roughly about 200,000 people. 
His approach was that he would typically go into the metro areas, share the gospel via the synagogue, and from there they would take the gospel into the more rural settings. What's interesting about Thessaloniki is that it was a setting that was known as a port setting, a port city. It was a place where the provincial governor resided. It was a large, crowded region. There were different beliefs, different ethnicities, and there were different values. This is not Jerusalem. But out of this, he makes his way into the synagogue, the place where the Jews could be found, where the scriptures would be read, where the traditions were typically kept, where their heritage was valued, and where the stories of the past, like the Exodus, like David and Goliath, and so on, were retold. He takes this weary body in this highly diverse setting, and he positions himself now in the synagogue. Stories told of when Napoleon the Great had a marshal who rode up to him and said, General, I, I fear the battle is lost. Napoleon looked at his watch and responded, Then it's time for another battle. Summon the army to a fresh charge. Calvin Coolidge in the White House said, Nothing in the world can take place of perseverance. Talent will not. Nothing in this world is more common than men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. Perseverance and determination alone are what is sufficient. The slogan, press on, has solved and always will solve a host of problems in the human condition. Now, Paul has persevered, despite the floggings, despite the challenges, so it's time for you, time for me, to take a good hard look at where he was, where he is, where he's been going, and take a look at the map. And as you and I look at the map, what you spot in the upper region is that this is the Via Ignatia, the superhighway. And so now he makes his way, and he's making his way from east to west, but notice as he did so, when he stopped in Philippi, Philippi was removed from the sea. In other words, it was not a place where people would dock their boats and hear, and hear this good news of salvation. It was set apart. And so when you and I, on our, on our ways, we make our way through Philippi, and we go through the ruins, we stop at one and we stop at the next and so on, we realize it's not a highly populated area even to this very day. Thus the ruins are still intact. And peer into that Philippian jail. From there we make our way to Amphipolis. As you make your way to Amphipolis, you and I, we notice the ruins that are in Amphipolis. And we ponder there is absolutely no place where the ruins of a synagogue are to be found, nor the next. As you make your way there into Apollonia, you see. 
But out of Apollonia, you and I then enter into Thessaloniki, as the natives would put it. And as we enter our way in, this is part of the Via Ignatia. This is part of your superhighway. Paul has walked roughly 100 miles with the gospel of Jesus Christ because, you see, even though he is physically challenged, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not going to be restricted by whatever it is you and I go through in life, including this COVID-19 era. All God does then is he opens up modern-day technology and creates new means by which people can communicate the effective nature of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So you and I, we need to view today's technology as our via Ignatia. You've entered in. You have found meeting places technologically. You go through what is known there is the Galeras Gate. And now as you do so, you're pondering out, who can I talk to next? How do I reason? How do I develop this? And rather than allowing the COVID-19 era, so to speak, to restrict, to limit the movement of the gospel... You look at the inspiration found in Paul's life. And he takes it on the Via Ignatia. And he takes it into Philippi where he's incarcerated. Still wearied from being beaten to the point of unconsciousness in Lystra. Moving forward 100 miles from Philippi onwards into Thessaloniki. But when you made your way to Thessaloniki... What you notice is that you are now in a port city. You are in a city, whether it be by land or by sea, the gospel is going to go forth. Some are going to take it going east-west via the Ignatia. Others are going to take it by the waters themselves on the great Aegean. But God in his sovereign purposes now has brought the Apostle Paul and the gospel of Jesus Christ with him into this Incredible setting of 200,000 people. Don't despise small beginnings. The synagogue was a small beginning in Thessaloniki. But out of it, he found his own via Ignatia to be able to communicate the truth, as should you and as should I. View technology as your via Ignatia. Move it forward. There's a second now emphasis found in verses 2 and 3, that as you and I, as we emphasize the necessity of Christ's work, I want you to notice with me not only the efforts that we should undertake in verse 1, no matter what we're going through right now in life, but number 2, I want to also see here the teachings that you and I, we should provide as we spot it now in verses 2 and 3. You're up to verse 2. Paul went in. Just picture yourself now, you're in front of your laptop and you're going in, logging in. And as you log in, Paul goes in, as was his custom, it's the Sabbath day. And notice what he does now. He knows his audience, he knows his strategy, he knows his emphasis. And so he takes three significant days where he knows people will congregate together. 
Always try to figure out where are people prone to congregate together, where you're going to be able to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ. Three Sabbath days is what he takes. And what I want to begin doing with you is noticing the verbs here in verses 2 and 3 that describe this extraordinary emphasis that Paul is bringing to the table. First of all, he reasoned with them. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now, when you and I are communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to do so logically, we need to do so consistently, we need to do so intelligently, but notice the parameters within his working. There are 66 books of the Bible. You look at the various generations, you look at the various books, you ponder the consistency of it all, and you begin with this whole matter of reasoning. And why does he reason, you see, from the scriptures? The word reasoning here comes from the Greek word dialogamai, from which we get the word dialogue. In other words, he involved himself in a Q&A in the synagogue. He would take a text, keep it in context, begin to explain it, furthermore develop it, and then hit the pause button and says, okay, what questions do we have here? Somebody would raise their hand, and he was a rabbi. He was highly educated under Gamaliel. And then what he would do at this point is that he would enter into dialogue with the people who were there. You could almost see them leaning forward because he was a powerful lecturer. And as he expounds God's word, he only has the older testament in front of him. Would you be able to do that? And what texts would he be utilizing anyways as he communicates the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? He only has the Older Testament, you know. And if you only had the Older Testament, where would you turn? What would be your starting point? And how would you go from what was written then to 2020 today through your via Ignatia? Under your Archbishop Galeris? Well, first of all, it's dialogical. He reasons. Then there's a second word you draw out. You're extracting it from the text. In verse 3, he's explaining. Now, the Greek word here means literally to open. And for the physicians, and there are a number in this congregation, whether they're physically present via live stream or YouTube during the week, this was a gynecological word. And it carried with it the idea of the opening of a womb. It was used in Luke chapter 2, verse 23. It would have been a very special word for Luke. He was a physician. And so he uses a medical term in Luke 2, verse 23. And then he connects it with what Jesus Christ himself was doing, a form of spiritual surgery, where on the road of the to Emmaus in Luke 24, in verse 27, 
Jesus, beginning with Moses and the prophets, interpreted to them all the scriptures, which means the Older Testament, things concerning himself. And then when you made your way to verse 32 of Luke 24, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? Get this. When he opened to us the scriptures, that was a medical term. With surgical precision, he moved from gynecology to cardiology from beginning to end in book one of Luke's writings. Brilliant. Now when you do that, and you've got a listening audience, you ponder then the experience of Jeff Cron, a Jew, who had written, at the time when my spiritual search began to intensify, I was pursuing a serious interest in my Jewish faith, but boy did I have questions. And although my parents were more or less secular Jews, I had been deeply influenced by my grandfather, who lived with us for a time and took me to the synagogue with him. Where is Paul right now? In the synagogue. And although I was living with what I thought was a pretty upstanding life, I was troubled by the supposed need of atonement through blood sacrifices expressed in Leviticus 17. There's no temple today. This led me to look more closely at Isaiah 53, and then I had questions. To whom does this refer? Did this passage relate to the Messiah? Was this the solution to my dilemma? I asked questions. Nobody seemed to have answers. The passage referred to in Isaiah 53, a person, not a nation. And I remember thinking, this looks like someone's doing the suffering for me. Not Israel suffering for itself. That began to lead me towards believing that the Messiah is God's provision for our forgiveness. I began to put it together. I began then to investigate the Newer Testament. And the big question is this. Did Isaiah 53 refer to Jesus? And as I started reading Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, I began checking the prophecies of the Hebrew scriptures. And as I did this, I started to see how Yeshua fit into prophetic description of the sacrifice God had provided for my forgiveness. And then I realized God sent Yeshua to die for my sins. And he did this from the Older Testament. This is how Jeff Crown figured it out. There's Paul. He reasoned with them. Dialogical. He explains gynecological, cardiology, wrapped together, medical terminology. But then a third, furthermore, proving. The word proving here carries with the idea to place beside. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is now doing in that synagogue, as you are doing online, is that you begin to lay next to one another 
the promises and the prophecies of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of those prophecies found in Jesus Christ. And you say, but Gary, how do I go about doing that? I think that the Apostle Paul probably had three significant passages from the Old Testament that he was utilizing. Don't you? The first would have been Psalm 22. He would have wanted to take the people to ponder the significance of what was said prophetically in that particular psalm when here we find these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then taking that text in the Old Testament, he would lay it alongside what Jesus Christ himself had communicated on that cross. What would he do next? Let's say you are sharing the gospel with somebody who's deeply, steeply engaged in Judaism. Isaiah 53 comes next. And so now, here's the Apostle Paul. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We are, we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. No sin found within him. Our sin placed upon him. You can almost hear a pin drop in that synagogue. And they're saying, but now wait a second. Our idea of Messiah is that he comes victorious. He reigns. He's going to conquer Rome. He's going to be our political savior. And even today in the United States of America, people are caught up in looking for political saviors. Oh, you got something to say. Even online, you got your own via Ignatia. But he's going to have to tack the death of Christ to the resurrection of Christ, utilizing only the Older Testament. And so now he turns most likely to Psalm 16. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor let your Holy One see corruption. Psalm 16, verse 10. And right there, what you've got now is death, resurrection, and you've got to pin it on the Messiah. But who is this Messiah he's talking about at this point? He explains, after having reasoned, he proves, he lays it alongside, it was necessary. Promise to vote. God fulfills his promises. God keeps his word. Apply it. For the Christ to suffer, that would have been stunning to them. But here's a man who is still grappling with his own wounds from, from his time of floggings and state of unconsciousness and beatings. He's got something to say, so do you. And to rise from the dead. Psalm 16, verse 10. Now he's going to pin it. 
is saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And in your Newer Testament, Christos is simply the Greek form of the Older Testament word, Matseah, from which we get Messiah. And I'm sure at that point, they are literally stunned. They had not taken into account a suffering servant, only a conquering political messiah. Connect dots for people on your own via Ignatia. Arnold Gabeline did it in New York as a Jew. Biographer states it was the beginning of a remarkable ministry in that city. Hundreds of Jewish people crowded into halls to hear Gabeline expound only from their Old Testament. And they found Christ as their Savior. For five years, Gabeline superintended the Hope of Israel mission, wrote books and tracts, edited two magazines, sought to win both Jews and Gentiles to Christ. Get this. Get this. Great story. He wrote a book called Studies in Zechariah. Publish it. He had a copy sent to every rabbi in New York City. Absolutely no response from any of the rabbis. But, and there's always a but with the gospel. However, sometime later, a young Hebrew Christian began to attend one of Gabeline's meetings regularly. It turned out he had been secretary to a well-known rabbi in New York City. The rabbi had thrown the studies in Zechariah into the wastebasket, but the secretary had rescued it, retrieved it, read it, trusted Christ, and was now sharing the gospel with other rabbis in New York City. You can't discard the gospel. You might have thought that somebody had heard the gospel in their, in their one experience in childhood, heard the gospel in their youth group ministry in their teenage years, but now has gone a separate way, and you're wondering, has that gone into the wastebasket of life itself? Oh, but God's got a way of retrieving the truth and reintroducing it at the critical issues of life itself when all of a sudden ears are open, hearts are open because life is being challenged and now they're having to listen carefully to how the truth of the gospel relates to the chaos of their lives. You see? And you're on your via Ignatia. You're pressing it forward. And as you do so, you've got the stamina to keep on keeping on in this COVID era. And as we emphasize the necessity of Christ's work, don't give up. Monday morning, don't give up. Note the efforts we should undertake. If he could handle unconsciousness, incarcerations. Notice, second of all, the teachings that we should provide. And notice the threefold usage of the verbs there. And now, thirdly, wrap up session. Notice, thirdly, the divisiveness that we should expect, or the divisiveness, depending upon where you grew up. And for me, it was divisiveness. For you, it might be divisiveness, but same word. And some of them, you see, 
some of them in verse 4 now. We only have made three verses so far this morning. So we've got to get some trucking going here. Some of them were persuaded, weren't they? Some of them were persuaded. Join Paul and Silas. Get this. As did a great many of devout Greeks, not a great many of devout Jews, a great many of devout Greeks. Look who's listening in. When you're sharing the gospel, look who's listening in. When you're sharing online, look who's listening in. When Paul's worshiping in prison, look who's listening in. And they joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women, but there's always a but, isn't there? Paul is always a riot waiting to happen. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. In other words, they brought people into the city. Think Kenosha. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Unrest. Pause. This is how you communicate technologically in a culture of unrest. Take the timeless truths, communicate in timeless ways, Look where there is unrest, because where there is unrest socially, it means there's unrest inwardly. In a culture that is tremendously restless, they need to find their rest in Christ. You pick it up now. You're up to verse 6. And when they could not find them, you see, Jason's already sent them on their way got together some euros to go, you see. Sent them on their way in Greece on the Via Ignatia. So what they do? They took this man who had given himself to hospitality and they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. And Jason has received them and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying there is Another king, Jesus, shades of the accusations against Christ in Jerusalem. And here, what are these Jews who are so concerned with blasphemy doing, talking about Caesar? Unless they find this is the only means they have to be able to restrict the gospel. But you've made your way to the end of verse 7. And we had noticed the Via Ignatia on our way into Thessaloniki. Thessaloniki. But take a look once more at the Arch of Galeris. This was our means of entering into Thessaloniki. Could it appear on the screen? And as it appears on the screen, you've made your way in, but you were told as you examined the text very carefully, as you and I have been on the road following in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul, that there's a statement made here by the writer Luke about the city authorities. You see it there in verse 6? 
But then you've been told by secularists in the various universities through the years, but there has not been found any evidence, you see, of city authorities using that Greek word, ah. But you've made your way from Greece to the British Museum. Look what comes next. You're a world traveler. And when some of our family members were in the British Museum, what was on my mind was this piece taken from the Arch of Galeris, which spoke of city officials and archaeological proof of exactly what Luke himself was describing. Once again, God, over the course of time, is sovereignly superintending events to prove that what he has said is true, what he has sent Christ to do was done, and now he verifies what was being articulated in the Gospel of Luke. You're up now to verse 7, 8, and 9. In verse 8, the people and the city authorities, which is described right there in front of this inscription, in front of your very eyes, back to all this, they're disturbed. Back to the text, they're disturbed when they heard these things. So what happens? And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. After the text of verses 8 and 9, you and I have opportunity to have pondered the ancient Thessalonian marketplace. That's the way it looked. It's one of the few remains when you and I take this journey together and we're pondering what it was that Luke was identifying and where it was that the Apostle Paul had ministered. That's the way it looked then. This is the way it looks now because modern-day Thessaloniki, as the natives call it, a large metro region, Wall-to-wall people, still positioned on a harbor so that whether it be by land or by sea, people have the opportunity of hearing the gospel, and now there is a Greek Bible college positioned right there where the students are opening up the Greek texts, and some of the professors who were classmates of mine are opening up texts for them, and explaining the good news of how Jesus Christ came into this world to die for our sins, and three days later be raised from the dead, and now you and I are standing in that pharmacy as the pharmacist shouts out in a loud voice, you need to follow this prescription. It is necessary. And we look at each other and smile. Jet lag made our way back from Greece to Sheboygan County, USA. And we remember the wording in verse 3. It was necessary. Death, resurrection, Jesus. Let's stand together. For those online via live stream, for those over the course of this week via YouTube. Take what's here now, Father. We've opened up the text as Paul did in the synagogue. Open up the hearts. 
and apply now timeless truths in a timely way. Changeless truths for changing times. Uproar in the cities, social unrest. But through it all, nothing restricts the forward movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there's one in any of these services, one on live stream, one via YouTube over the week, that needs a heart opened. May they open up the text. We pray the Holy Spirit opens up the heart. Cardiology and its work thereof begins to unfold. And the heart is filled with Jesus as they put their faith and trust in him alone. For this we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.